is the New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon on ABC Radio New South Wales. Hello again and welcome to the show. Coming up we look at the situation on the roads and the flood hit Central West and uh, also we find out what's happening in regards to the uh, port situation. Some news from Parliament on that. Some good news there for farmers. We'll hear more about that shortly on the program. You can always send us a text here at the Country Hour. 0467 922 is the number to text me here at the Country Hour. But first up today, the flood damage bill for livestock and agriculture continues to grow with uh, stock losses rising and crops washed away, not worth harvesting in many cases, uh, to the tune of already over $150 million. And that figure is rising. Piers Harper is the Incident Controller for Agricultural Animal Services during the floods and says that farmers are still calling their hotline in pretty high numbers asking for help with stock and adjustment and fodder issues as well. The flood levels are receding in some areas, but in other areas they're, they're still rising as the dams release water. Um, and it's so widespread at the moment. And as each weather system moves through, which we've seen from the west, it just tops up the river systems and um, they remain high for a long time and we're expecting them to remain high for weeks on end. And more rain on the way, which must be a concern too for you. It is a concern. There is more rain projected through on um, Sunday, Monday. Um, We are trying to keep people informed of these weather patterns as they're coming through. We're using a lot of social media, obviously on radio, working in partnership with sort of the Bureau of Meteorology and the State Emergency Services. So we're pushing out this information so people can be as prepared as they possibly can. And the damage bill rising all the time, hundreds of millions of dollars already now, so livestock, cropping, roads, infrastructure, huge damage. The losses will continue for the next few months um, as the isolation continues and the floodwaters continue to uh, move downstream. The losses are accumulating and and from an agriculture point of view, um, really we only have interim figures at the moment. Yeah, so it's going to get worse. it, It will get worse. We've probably had that. What we're encouraging people to do is to log on to the Department of Primary Industries damage survey and indicate what losses they've had and what damage they've had. They can record the number of crops, animals and infrastructure that have been impacted. Up until yesterday, we probably had over 500 damage reports have been submitted. You know, it's over 200 million worth of damage reported so far. A big component of that obviously is to cropping. Uh, it's about 158 million reported damage to cropping, infrastructure about 40 million dollars, and and livestock damage as well. But that's just an interim figure, and as unfortunately we're just going to see that figure rise as time goes past. And that's sort of not that sort of losses. That's not counting downgrading of crops from you know bumper crops that are looking fantastic that uh, are now you know getting a fraction of what they would have. Uh, because of the damage as and and livestock illness in in livestock because of uh, uh, wet feet wet paddocks not enough feed a whole range of issues there there are and what we are doing at the moment is if people have issues or are in an emergency situation there is um, a hotline to call for agriculture and animals that number is one eight hundred eight one four six four seven um, so if you are having issues uh, or need assistance with animal assessment or veterinary support, 
you know, emergency fodder or euthanasia or burial, um, please call that number. We have a number of staff based around um, those areas that are impacted. We've got a state control centre that's operating in Orange with forward command posts in places like Daniloquin and Wagga and Maori and staff in Dubbo. So we've got staff actively out there at the moment. Um, at the moment, we've probably had nearly 600 calls to that hotline. Well, um, well yeah, what sort, of, what sort of assistance are people needing at the moment? We've had about 370 requests for assistance so far, and about 20 or a quarter, quarter of that have been requests for aerial surveillance. Uh, the floodwaters are so extensive, and it's very difficult to get out on property, so people want to get an idea of where their livestock are and what condition they're in. Um, about another 20% of those calls are for uh, needing aerial fodder delivery where people are, where animals are isolated. In most cases, the landholders will source the fodder, the issue being getting it to their livestock, and that's where we come in. So if you log a call in there, we'll call you back, uh, make an assessment of what your needs are, and then we'll be able to assist you. Okay, so the, so it's active now. People need the fodder. They need help. They need surveillance, and they also need help moving livestock in some cases and pretty dramatic rescues. In some cases, they do. Um, you know, aerial lifting is a last resort. Mm. Um, we'll go through a number of scenarios. The important thing is that we'll get local staff contacting the landholders, and they'll work through a number of options um, to assist them. So that that might be keeping them the same place, safe place and bringing fodder into that location, examining what other options, if the river levels are going down, they might hold out for a couple of days. But in the last case, worst case scenario, we'll have to lift them out. And we've seen a number of sheep lifts occurring in the last few days. And I, I guess you're in for the long haul because this, you're, as you were saying, this could last for months. It could last for months uh, and it is unfortunate, but we're not going away. That 1800 number is going to be there uh, for the duration, as are the staff. And you can also register the damage there as well, which is important to get federal government funding as well. Well, it is to get a good picture of what type of damage has occurred and the extent of it, um, because that will inform the assistance packages that will then flow on from this to come back and, and, and assist in the recovery process. So we do encourage people to go online and fill out the Department of Primary Industries Damage Survey. Piers Harper is the incident, incident controller for agriculture and animal services. That hotline number again, 1-800-814-647. 1-800-814-647. They're getting, uh, they've got about 600 calls, uh, they reckon. So, uh, And you can also uh, get uh, let them know the details of the damage, the damage bill. That's important to put to uh, state and federal government so they know about the assistance that people might require. Uh, you can do that on the uh, DPI website. It's 12 minutes past 12 here on the New South Wales Country Owl, uh, still on that issue and that widespread flooding, it's persisting across the state and sheep producers have reported deaths are on the rise, fly strike, worm pressure, foot abscesses, they require hands-on management but in some cases sheep are stranded and shearing keeps getting pushed back. Sean Slattery is a district vet with uh, LLS based at Narrabri and Walgut and he says there's support available to help farmers in the months ahead. Uh, look, Josh, particularly seeing impacts on, on sheep. Um, in the last week, I've received a, a number of calls from sheep that have been affected by the floods, uh, both through you know, the wet conditions and also sheep being crowded onto smaller areas, parts of paddocks, etc. We've been battling with Barber's Pole uh, for most of the last two years. Um, 
Bleased up a little bit over winter, but now we're really seeing that again with these sheep that have been in small areas with some some landholders reporting deaths in adult sheep and even in young uh, lambs at marking. Uh, but the other thing which really emerged in the last week is the large number of producers who are really being impacted by a blow fly strike on sheep. It sounds like the floods have not led to many sheep drowning uh, because of the slow nature of them, but there's been other animal health issues that's uh, causing people to lose sheep um, on their properties at the moment. Yeah, look, particularly in the north, and that's where I've got first-hand uh, sort of experience, the losses really have been from Barber's Pole and Fly Strike. Um, I had one report from a, a producer who um, had, um, you know, a couple of hundred or well, several hundred unshorn sheep that he was trying to get shorn. And, uh, look, he was losing several a day from fly strike due to the delay in shearing, which was something that the uh, the flood response was dealing with. So that's the impacts we're really seeing. Um, I've also seen producers uh, who have lost, uh, you know, sort of, you know, 5% of their ewes due to barbers pole, being able to either unable get to them uh, or, or also that just, you know, that it's really blown up because they were confined in smaller areas uh, with high grazing densities. So do you have any other advice for farmers at the moment? Because it sounds like they're facing challenges on multiple fronts, not only with the flooding, but feed issues in sheep. Also, you know, as you mentioned, flies issues being a big one and then also worm pressure. Yeah, look, um, we've dealt with the worms. But in terms of the flies, I'd ask um, producers really... Uh, they have a number of um, decisions that they have to make depending on the situation where we are. Um, the Australian Wool Innovation has a, um, a very good information fact on the chemicals you can apply in various situations because we have um, people who have suffering fly strike problems because they've got full wool sheep with delayed shearing. Um, they're wondering what products they can put on to stop the strike that will still allow them to shear within a short period. Uh, that information is there. But another problem I should mention, I was talking to a number of my colleagues further south today, is that they're seeing a lot of sheep with uh, foot problems, uh, lameness, uh, abscesses and other problems. Um, that can really lead on to further issues unless they're dealt with. Um, in terms of foot abscess and the other conditions, there are a number of um, products we can use. Um, on veterinary advice or after a veterinary clinical assessment that can really make a huge difference to their recovery. So again, um, probably the general message is when you're faced with these problems, uh, these are extreme circumstances, please seek veterinary advice on which is the best way for you to manage them. Sean Slattery is a district vet with the LLS based at Narrabri and Walgett. Now, Floyd Leg runs fine wool merinos and a prime lamb operation across Kudal and Forbes. He says it's a particularly challenging time for wool growers? Uh, it's certainly been a trying time. Um, one farm that we have at Forbes is half underwater and has been underwater for the last few weeks and we just don't know we see rainfall uh, when that will subside, particularly as um, Condobolin is well flooded. So, yeah, it'll be just a matter of time before we see uh, that water disappear. Um, here at Kudal, that certainly hasn't been quite as wet, but um, but it still had its challenges with uh, with bogging and um, and just being able to get the things done that we normally would this time of the year. And the Forbes property, did you have sheep stocked on that property? 
Yes, yeah, so it's um it's stocked with fine more merinos and cross red use. Um the front half doesn't flood so we had sufficient warning to be able to get them onto the front half. But um but the issue going forward is the fact that um that uh the pasture will be dead um uh from from the flood water um for a foreseeable future. So um it'll be just a thing of um of uh having half a farm with with a full complement of stock on there. We're hearing that there is a a multitude of animal health issues that are affecting farmers, some of which are are foot issues for sheep, a a higher worm burden, and also uh, blowflies also leading to some deaths. What are you uh, experiencing on your farm or hearing from, from your friends? Uh, what I've been hearing is uh, particularly the worms have been an issue because we've gone through from one wet summer coming into another one. There just hasn't been the break of the life cycle in the worm. So it's not normal in this area for us to have issues with barber's pole through the um, uh, winter and um, coming into springtime. It's more an issue um, into your summertime and uh, the start of autumn. So that, that's been a a key concern that the fact that in particularly in the young stock the fact they're looking well but but they're a high worm burden um uh because they haven't been the break and that's leading to people losing sheep yes i i have heard instances where people have lost sheep where they've been checking their stock on a regular basis and then when they start to pick up that there's some issues that they go to do something about it but but because of the impact of the barber's pole um as i'm moving them towards the yards um that there's uh sheep uh but being affected by those worms uh even even though they've been vigilant up to that point, that has just caught them off guard. Floyd Legg from Kudal talking about sheep there, ending that report from Josh Becker. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Well, after the worst flooding in 70 years hit Forbes over the weekend, the clean-up effort is well underway. A major flood peak of 10.67 metres resulted in large parts of the CBD being affected by river rises. Peter Maher runs a sheep-shearing business supply, uh, supplies business in town and told Hamish Cole it will cost more than $10,000 to repair the shop. Yeah, well, we had to shut the business, obviously, and, uh, and it came through about waist tight at the back of my shed, uh, into my office, and only a little bit got into my shop front, thing, thankfully. And, you know, how, how high did that water get? Uh, well, it was up to my waist. I reckon it was about probably, oh, did it have to be over three feet? And have you ever seen it so so high in your business? No, no. And did you, you know, were you expecting it to, to kind of come through in that in that manner? I sandbagged everything and I thought the sandbags would hold it, but obviously they didn't. Yeah, so it just sort of seeped straight through the sandbags and yeah, and the plastic. I had a lot of goods lifted up, but it still wasn't high enough. And, you know, like I probably couldn't have gone any higher than what I did. And, you know, you run a, a sheep shearing supplies business. What's yeah, what's the effect going to be on your on the amount of stock that you've lost? I've uh, probably lost about, I don't know, probably lost 10%, yeah. That I know of so far, yeah, until I go sort of digging more, find out if I've lost more. And, you know, how, how long do you think it's going to take you to, to do the clean-up and, and get oh, the business ready to go again? Four or five days. And, you know, how does that make you feel that it's been, you know, this kind of this flooding and, and having this effect? It doesn't make you feel real good. 
And Peter, what's you know with more more rain on the way? You know, what do you think that's going to? You know, there's more rain predicted for this weekend, and with the third La Nina, if we see this again, this kind of rain, uh, this kind of flooding again, what's that going to mean for businesses like yourself and other ones in Forbes? Yeah, it's going to be pretty devastating. Yeah, because there's a lot of like there's a lot of people that got caught short. You know, that's damaged their houses and damaged their businesses. A lot of people can't get to work. Yeah. So, you know, financially, yeah, it'd be a disaster. For your place, what kind of support do you, do you guys need to, to get to get back up and running again? Well, we need the Army and the SES. The Army are in town, but we haven't seen them. And the Air Force, but we haven't seen anybody. It's just me and my partner here. And we're in the main street where everybody can see us. With the, the business as well, what do you think is the cost going to be uh, to, to get the business back up and running? No, I don't know, probably ten or $12,000. And... How does what's the effect of that for for you? Is you know after the the flooding that you guys have seen the last twelve months, you know to have this kind of cost put on you? How do, what's that like? Yeah, not real good, not real good. But we've seen it before, and yeah. Anyway, we just have to deal with it. What kind of support from the government do you, would you like to see for for businesses like yourself who have been affected like I'd this? Like to see a subsidy or something, you know, like help us get going again and that sort of thing for loss of income and. You know, I don't know whether that's going to happen. Peter Maher speaking there with Hamish Cole about uh, shearing, shearing uh, supply business uh, that uh, affected by flooding in the main street of Forbes. 22 minutes past 12 on the country hour. Well, still on the issues regarding Forbes, and as we heard yesterday, uh, talking to the roads minister, Sam Faraway, the road network is certainly under pressure with potholes and flooding. The main Newell Highway is still cut between West Wyalong and Forbes. Some pundits think the highway, main highways could be closed for weeks or even months in some cases, but uh, Mayor of Forbes Shire Council, uh, Phyllis Miller, says she's confident that the federal and state government help uh, that, that with that sort of help, it will be open, albeit in a restricted way. It'll be open, she says, or hopes, much quicker. I am. I think we're much more innovative in the way that we do business now. And I know that Sam has been getting some advice as to um, how he can get that uh, road repaired and open. Um, I've got a bit of faith in, in uh, the work that him and his department's doing so. I don't think it will be weeks or months. I think um, I think he's trying to make it as soon as possible. As soon as that water can recede to a level where we can get, um, you know, the vehicles in to do the repairs, I think we'll have it back open under traffic control, of course. But we'll have it back open. Now the main issue is between Forbes and West Wyalong, is it? Yes, we've got the um, West Wyalong and Forbes uh, Newell Highway that uh, is closed but also our arterial roads uh, for um, detours to get back onto the highway, they're also closed. It's a pretty long trip just to get yourself around uh, to get back onto the Newell Highway. So even if you have, say, uh, detours or even getting back on the highway, it will be slow going. There's still pockets where there's weather damage, flood damage and still water on the road. Yeah, absolutely. We, I, I think we'd be very reluctant to open up one of the state roads while there was water on the roads as a detour. I think we need to be really mindful and careful about uh, doing that. So um, we'll just have to wait and see. Like, it's all just a big waiting game at the moment. Um, it's how fast the water can get away. And unfortunately, we're so saturated 
that is taking an enormous amount of time for the water to flow through. Now, in, in terms of the issues uh, of those, so those state roads, you've got that $50 million of funding for pothole funding, but you've got to wait for the water to go away first, haven't you? And uh, pumping is, is being looked at for the main highway and state highways as well to try and get rid of the water and get it away faster? Absolutely, and to try and get that, that um, repair work done as quickly as possible. I think people are much more um, in tune with doing um, work in a different manner to what we've done years ago. You'd wait and wait and wait uh, for the water to go. But in relation to our potholes, there are areas uh, that we can start to do some uh, pothole um, repair work. We had to do some, the water went through town and of course big, big lumps of our roadway was washed away. That was all repaired yesterday by our beautiful council staff who did an amazing job. But we are waiting and hopefully farmers have had enormous losses in this flood, especially down in the Bajerabong and Gemalong area. So we're just hoping uh, that when we can, we will try and employ those farmers uh, to help us with that pothole uh, road work um, jobs. Right, to help out. So, yeah, and uh, put the people putting their hand up. Yep, help them out and help out, you know, uh, the uh, civic in- infrastructure as well. Good idea. Yeah, well, when the flood was on, we, we were quite um, innovative, Michael. Um, we were in a dust bowl, of course, except for around the lake. We kept it green. But we got the farmers in, they built picket fences, they put in a solar lighting all around our walkways around the lake, which is one of the longest walkways in the world. Uh, They did a heap of other jobs. A couple of farmers actually got a job with council. And we had job share with that so that they just made enough money. At least they could keep food on their table. So we'll be looking at getting farmers when we get through this terrible time we're out of the Jeroboam and Waru and Coronella, once we get through that, we'll get them to start to register and we will do everything we can uh, to give them some work just to get tied them over. And, of course, we were talking about that major highway. So that's a farm, freight, uh, tourism. It's a major, major issue. Absolutely. And, and with tourism, it's not just our federal highways that's really important for tourism. Economically, they're very, very important. But our state roads and local roads, they are our productivity roads. They're the ones that all of the all of the commodities come uh, off to market on those roads. Unfortunately, I don't think we're going to have a lot of commodity left. Uh, I think uh, a lot of our um, crops have been washed away. We've got stock losses. Uh, we've been four months in um, flood out in that. Gemalong, um, Bajerabong, Coronella region. Uh, so there is a lot of devastation out there. And I'll be looking uh, to try and get um, more help for those farmers and the businesses to get themselves up and running again. You know, there's a big damage bill. Yeah, and I'll give um, uh, Minister Faraway his dues the other day. I've, I've said to him, we're, we're in a state of emergency with our roads right across New South Wales. It's not just mm. my shire. Everyone that suffered um, flooding is in the same boat that we are. So I don't believe normal funding is ever going to put our roads back where they need to be in the short-term future. I said to him, we need 
extra help. We don't only need money, we need manpower. We need to get those roads up and running for the economy of this nation. Phyllis Miller is the Mayor of the Forbes Shire Council. It's 28 minutes past 12 on the New South Wales Country Hour. Well, still on the flooding, but this time across the border in Victoria, the community of Echuca Moama has been facing floods for more than three weeks now, and the impacts will be ongoing. Kate Burke is a farmer from Echuca, and she says the area affected is very large now, including her own farm. We, we live in town, but we've also got uh, small acreage, just under 300 acres further west out near Turumbri, and that's a, a wheat crop. And it's part of um, what they call the Terex Plain and the Patho Plains. We've got a, what's an, an old waterway that um, flows through the property. So there's probably about a third of the property that's inundated with water. And it looks like it's going to sit there a while. Because that water, essentially it comes from Rochester, works its way northwest through to the Murray River. We use share farmers and I'm really concerned for them and because our paddock's not their only paddock that's been inundated. They're trying to get on with it and you know they're trying to get organised to windrow canola that's lying down. The trouble with floods is there's winners and losers depending on where your farm is so it's a really tricky time. People have got sheep that are isolated on high, high ground particularly on the New South Wales side of the river on, on our side of the river, dairy farmers, um, you know, have lost pasture and places for, for um, to stand their cattle, so they've had to shift cattle. And it's not just Echuca, you know, it's Rochester, Echuca, it's east to Shepparton, Yarrawonga, now it's west to um, all the way to Swan Hill and then north to Moolamang, so it's, a, it's really expansive. Kate Burt from Echuca, uh, and thanks to uh, Simon Wallace for that interview. It's uh, coming up to half past 12 here on the New South Wales Country Hour. Short, we'll get the, shortly we'll get the latest information on the ports changes from New South Wales farmers. They're welcoming the changes there. But before we do that, uh, let's get some news headlines from Jamel Wells. Good afternoon. Michael, good afternoon. Medibank has confirmed the criminal responsible for stealing customer data has released some of that information on a dark web forum. Former Prime Minister John Howard has paid tribute to former Liberal Cabinet Minister Peter Reith, who's died at 72 as a key figure in the Howard government. Mr Reith played a role during the 1998 waterfront dispute and as Defence Minister at the centre of the Children Overboard scandal. Premier Dominic Perrottet has declined to commit to introducing gambling reform by the end of the year. He says cashless gaming cards are on the way, but he wants bipartisan support to see through reform. Form. In the US, vote counting is continuing in midterm elections, and back home, police and medical staff have been praised for their efforts to try to save the life of a toddler mauled by dogs in the Central West. The two year old boy suffered serious injuries when he was bitten at a motel in Cowra yesterday. He died in Westmead Children's Hospital. I'll have the details at one o'clock. Terrible story. Yes, very yes. Sad. Very sad indeed. All right, thanks for that, Jamel. We'll be listening at one o'clock. It's uh, coming up to uh, 28 minutes to one here on the country hour. And uh, we've been talking about the rain, the flooding, the concerns there. Jordan Nataro at the Bureau, good afternoon. Yes, good afternoon, Michael. So it's um, relatively dry around the state at the moment, but it's not going to last that way for much longer. Yeah, that's right. We did see the blood moon last night, all clear skies in many areas of the state. 
Uh, through to today, we have seen again some isolated storms around parts of the Alpine, but not anticipating any severe storms. The next period we are looking at is from Thursday, as we start to see in the far west of the state, the trough in intensifying. We are looking like we could see some isolated, potentially some scattered severe thunderstorms as we head into Thursday afternoon. That's going to be shifting further east as we get through Friday, edging basically closer towards parts of the western slopes. And that, again, potential for some uh, isolated severe thunderstorms through Friday. But the focus is going to be as we head towards the weekend when we are going to see a broader low-pressure trough come across and a frontal system shifting across the state, enhancing rainfall, particularly as we head into Sunday where we are looking at more widespread rain, severe thunderstorms. And unfortunately, we are looking at the potential of renewed rises due to rainfall, particularly falling on that Sunday period. And which river systems are we, are we going to be watching, like the Macquarie, the Lachlan, the Murrumbidgee, the Murray? Are they the ones that uh, we, we might see that, uh, that those uh, flood peaks rising again? They will be the ones that will be definitely of focus. Um, even into places further into the north and slopes as well, there will be rises unlikely to be significant comparative to what we could see further in the south and southeast as well. Um, but at this stage, it is going to be likely they'll be seeing flood watches being issued as we head towards the latter part of the week for the anticipated rainfall. And that will message the anticipated flood risk as we head into the coming week as those rains uh, fall into the catchments and move down the streams. Right, okay, so that and, and what sort of rainfall might we see sort of generally across the state and particular areas? Of, I mean, it's hard to, I know it's hard, but maybe give us an idea. Yeah, so early indications would be widespread, so more than the 15 to 30 millimetres over the 24 hours of Sunday. Uh, isolated locations have the chance of seeing upwards of 50 to 100 millimetres just due to the high amounts of moisture and the severity of this system coming across. So, if we do obviously see numbers of storms moving over locations around parts of the wet catchments, we are going to see the risk of some potential renewed major flooding in locations. So until we start to see that um, observations of that rainfall here in the ground, we can get a true indication of how bad it's going to be. It is unfortunately a bit of a waiting game at this stage. And you're saying there could be thunderstorms or some severe weather coming with that, is that right? Absolutely. So we're looking at the basically severe thunderstorm warnings being issued any time from tomorrow in the far west of the state, and that's going to continue all the way through until Monday, pushing further east over the actual coastlines. We head through early parts of Monday with those stronger westerly winds pushing over the regions of the coast as well. So the rain lasting till Monday and then petering out, or what's likely to happen then? Yeah, there is a breakdown from there, which is the best news we can actually see. And noting that obviously we've got some potentially quiet hazardous weather in the shorter term. The long term really is as we head into the later part of Monday, into Tuesday at this stage, no clear indications of any follow-up systems coming through and it hopefully will stay that way. So that's the indication at this stage. But uh, as you say, like 30 to 50 coming over the weekend and, and on to Monday. So, uh, and, and, that's, and that's likely to be quite widespread and, and maybe into the north as well. Potentially, yeah. So at this stage, it is looking like another one of those repeat systems we've seen in past with those cut-off low-pressure systems pushing across the state. There is going to be, a, yeah, again, quite widespread severe thunderstorm activity and quite high moisture being fed into the system. So it is looking like a system sufficient enough that we'll be seeing renewed flooding in parts of the west of the state. Uh, and again, until we start to see exactly how much falls over the next few days, it is going to basically paint a picture of how bad the flooding risk is going to be. So a bit of a wait and see. All right, Jordan, thanks for that. Not great news, but uh, thanks for letting us know. Catch you later, Michael. It's uh, 24 minutes to one here on the New South Wales Country Hour.
You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. After some political wrangling, the Port of Newcastle will soon be operating on a more level playing field after a bill passed the lower house of New South Wales Parliament yesterday, removing a controversial cap on the number of containers it can move. Independent member for Lake Macquarie, Greg Piper, introduced a bill last month and it was backed by some nationals, backbenchers and Labor with some amendments. The development of a bigger container terminal at Newcastle could be a boon for agriculture. And New South Wales Farmers President Xavier Martin told Amelia Bernasconi it could save the farm sector $100 million. Yeah, look, we've had an artificial constraint, which is, uh, you know, it may have seemed a good idea when Newcastle Port was just so strongly uh, in demand for a burgeoning, you know, a growing coal task. Uh, it was probably not apparent more than a decade ago just how things would evolve. And what we're dealing with now is that, uh, well, we've got a million potholes sort of thing across the state and we've got, um, you know, uh, containered, containerised inputs and outputs, uh, third fibre, trying to get to market and been put on trucks and driven through a city of five million people to, to get to Port, and that, that's obviously Botany. Um, Port Kembla's had its own issues that have still got to be worked on. And look, the standout that needed a review and a reset and the great opportunity to really save the best part of um, $100 million a year in efficiencies is the Port of Newcastle. But the, the ability, both wet side and dry side there, to, to service the container industry is, is just amazing and we're really pleased that this progress will see that access occur. Xavier Martin's with us this morning. He's the President of New South Wales Farmers. You touch on there the million potholes. I reckon you're pretty close to the mark there, Xavier. And of course, you know, this terrible flooding encompassing so much of the state. There is going to be, uh, you know, less grain this, this season. Uh, there's going to be a lot of impacts on the roads as well. But um, going forward, how quickly could this change come into play you know, by what season could we potentially be um, unshackling uh, the challenges that have been in place previously? Oh, look, I think given the strong will in the Parliament, and I understand uh, the Upper House will probably deal with this in the next night or two, I think there's a National Party lead on it to uh, to initiate that. And um, I think Port of Newcastle has demonstrated a proactive approach to investment and initiatives and uh, I would expect things will be happening reasonably quickly, but I'll leave it up to them to announce their uh, their plans. But what I should say is I'm optimistic that they will in- employ the latest technology and really deliver some considerable efficiencies, get this ag dynamo going that is agriculture across New South Wales. New South Wales Farmers President Xavier Martin, Martin talking about changes there to the port of Newcastle, allowing more containers in which will uh, supposedly be a boon for agriculture. It's uh, coming up to 20 minutes to one on the country hour. Well, the federal government has announced it will review the immigration system to make it simpler and to stop rotting and exploitation of workers, which could have major implications for farmers. The ag sector, of course, relies on seasonal workers and professionals to cover shortages in key areas and at key times. But some of the schemes have been played by shonky labour hire companies, employing people on tourist visas for low wages and poor conditions. The Australian Workers' Union wants to see all of that tightened up with a national system of registrations for employers, tax file numbers for all employees 
and a pick-up-and-go system to enable workers to move around to different employers. Daniel Walton is the National Secretary of the AWU and he told David Clawton that workers should have the capacity to change employers. Well, ultimately what we want to see is complete transparency, that is, this proper rigour process around assessing who can bring workers in. We want to see workers have the capacity to be able to up and go. That is, that is if you're a visa worker working in agriculture and you find yourself on a bad farm, that you can shift and change employer. That doesn't happen at the moment. What happens for workers, if you raise complaints on farms at the moment, for a lot of them, particularly our friends in the Pacific, is they get told they're on the next plane back home to bring shame to their community. And so we've seen countless, countless investigations. You know, this will be another one, which will no doubt point out all the problems, but I'm hopeful now that with the change of government, there's an appetite here to actually fix it at the end of the day. Do employers put in a lot of resources to get people onto their farm or their agricultural business? So the idea that they could just up and go might be frustrating for them. Well, I think if you look at it in agriculture in comparison to everywhere else, like if you're bringing workers over to work in your business, every other industry pays for those workers to come over. In agriculture, workers have their flights deducted. They have deductions taken out for accommodation, deductions for transport, for water, for PPE. Agricultural workers in this country are treated like second-class citizens. And so I think if we're going to have a deep dive into this, we've got to have a look to say, well, what happens if you're coming over to work in construction or resources and how does that compare to agriculture? Over in New Zealand, we know that workers have got portability that they can up and go if they are working in an unsafe farm or a farm uh, who's not doing the right thing. And I've spoken to a lot of farmers over the time and they, I think they will welcome that because what it will do is shake out the shonks out of the industry. That is, if everyone is up and leaving from the dodgy farms and people are going to stay working on the good operators, and I think overall that will provide a better outcome for the industry, but also provide a better outcome for Australia and Australia's reputation for many great workers from around the world coming here to earn some money and help our agriculture industry continue to function. John Azarius, uh, who was formerly worked for Deloitte, he conducted a review for the ag sector in nine, uh, 2019, and at the time you were uh, encouraging him to uh, put forward a plan to register all the employers. But would that stop this problem of, of, of labour hire companies just disappearing as soon as they, there's a sign of an investigation and, and resurfacing under a different name? Well, absolutely. If you look in terms up in Queensland with some of the labour hire schemes they've put in place, if you look down in Victoria, the state's moved ahead of the federal government here because they've seen the problem and the previous government failed to act. And so they've moved to protect workers in their states and put in place these programs. Now, clearly in agriculture, we've got an itinerant workforce that travel across the country, so it makes a lot more sense to have a program in right across the board, a simple program right across the board for the whole country so that business owners know what they need to do and workers have some security of employment. Daniel Walton is the National Secretary of the Australian Workers' Union. It's 17 to 1. The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. A consortium of farmers, industry and scientists is launching a bid to massively expand Australia's hemp crop. The hemp CRC bid is asking the federal government to match $50 million worth of support already pledged by industry to establish a cooperative research centre to reverse what it says is 80 years of neglect. 
The bid wants to see the national crop expanded from the current 2,300 hectares to more than 100,000 over the next decade. I spoke to Professor Karen Phelps, who's the chair-elect of the Hemp CRC. The Hemp CRC will give the industry 10 years of research funding across the entire supply chain. And it's through this that the industry will be able to maximise all of the potential. We need this level of investment as, because research into hemp stopped about 90 years ago. And so in realising the potential of the industry, there has to be a long-term investment of the size that we're talking about. So is your interest in this medical or are you interested in the, the, in the cropping benefits, the agronomics as well? I'm interested in the broad uh, implications of the, the potential for the hemp industry. We're looking at uh, not only production, and there is tremendous potential for agronomy here. The agricultural sector has a lot to gain. But there are also the health benefits, and I've been able to see that through my experience in medical practice of patients who have benefited from medicinal cannabis. But there are also things like the environmental aspects of, of uh, being able to uh, improve uh, the potential for carbon sequestration and mitigation, uh, developing zero waste strategies, also different materials to research into, for example, standards for the construction industry for the use of hemp fibre in, in things like uh, concrete. And uh, th then looking at investigating the future, there's, there's a lot of excitement about the potential future. And of course, the education and training aspects as well, not just for uh, doctors to learn more about medicinal cannabis, but also for uh, farmers to be able to learn, learn more about maximising um, their crop and minimising their risk. And of course, this is going to be a very active research area, looking into things like, you know, which varieties are best in which climate, uh, how to protect crops, phytochemical analysis, uh, looking at clinical trials. So, you know, the, the, the scope for... Uh, the potential for this industry is quite enormous. Yeah, there was a, you know, it's had a dirty name, hasn't it, as you say, for 90 years because of that campaign by DuPont and people in the cotton industry and William Randolph Hearst got on the bandwagon to, to have crops of hemp banned in the United States and that was the beginning of it then. How long is it going to take to sort of turn that around or is it, or is oil on the nose now so much that uh, that they're sort of having to move to something like hemp? Well, I'm certainly tapping into the excitement from all areas uh, of the hemp industry, from uh, talking to farmers, to researchers, to government departments, to uh, universities. Uh, you know, there are a number of universities involved in this CRC, University of Southern Queensland, Deakin University, Southern Cross, Western Sydney Uni. The CRCRO is contributing uh, their expertise, Agrifutures Australia, uh, industry partners, not only in Australia, but uh, but internationally as well. And, and so I do think that the time is right. Uh, I think uh, that the uh, campaign against hemp and, and the stigma around hemp, I think, is has uh, evaporated or evaporating. And I think the time is right. And, and I know that in talking to farmers that they are very excited about the, the option of, of a new rotational crop. And at the moment, there is probably just over 2,000 hectares of hemp um, uh, being being farmed. But we're looking at, at a medium term goal of about 100,000 hectares and growing from there. There's, but there is, as I said, tremendous potential, even uh, from something like the manufacture of paper, if you can you get the, the volumes of hemp, you, that uh, the fibre from hemp can be used in fibreglass, it can be used in 
a range of building materials, textiles. I mean, Australia uh, can be producing uh, hemp textiles, for example, for um, for the use of for, for making clothing, and all of this on a more sustainable footing than than the current materials that are being used. So, the potential is enormous, and uh, I think it's very important to put the research behind it so that we are actually uh, able to get the most out of uh, out of the hemp industry and uh, and then the economy benefits. A hundred thousand hectares over the next decade. Uh, presumably, that would take some some hectares away from cotton. It's uh, ag- there's some ag- agronomic agronomic benefits for you know the, for the crop that people are, are looking at. Do you think that you know it'll be easy to take that those you know those hectares away from other crops? Well, that's up to the farmers, and I think that the, the business case has to be made, and uh, and then that will be up to to the farmers to make a decision about what works for them. But certainly, hemp as a as a crop, uh, from my understanding, is it uses quite a lot less water, which would be uh, an attractive proposition. It fixes uh, and more nitrogen in the soil, I gather, too. Yes, well, there there are those environmental benefits as well, and uh, and so you know, I'll, one of one of the great things about about research is that it answers a lot of those questions, and uh, and so uh, being able to put real funding behind these research initiatives will will produce the answers that, that farmers will be looking for. But they'll want to be able to sell it too. Is there a ready market or is that developing yeah. and that sort of thing? Yes. Well, this is the important thing about uh, this particular uh, CRC is that it will be looking at, at research right across the whole supply chain from uh, from the, the, the production of seeds, uh, the production of crops, right through to, to finding new markets. And so it's very important that, that all of those linkages are made so that the industry can maximise its potential by making the links from production right through to the end user. Professor Karen Phelps is the chair-elect of the Hemp CRC. It's 10 minutes to one here on the New South Wales Country Hour. Well, Japanese encephalitis, uh, it's a big, big issue at the moment. Health professionals from across the country, they've met in Dubbo over the last few days to discuss the risks around mosquito-borne diseases and how to prevent them. Japanese encephalitis was detected across western and southern New South Wales last mosquito season and in samples from commercial pig farms as well. This season there's been more more variants and new breeds of mosquitoes found across the region. Associate Professor Cameron Webb from New South Wales Health Pathology and the University of Sydney told Georgia Condec that the recent flooding has only exacerbated the situation. So the workshop here in Dubbo for the last couple of days has been dealing with um, how we better manage mosquito populations and help protect the community from not just mosquito bites but also the pathogens they can spread by mosquitoes. And so it's mostly associated with uh, participants in the New South Wales Arbovirus Surveillance and Mosquito Monitoring Program. That's a program that involves representatives of the uh, local public health unit but especially local government in uh, Western New South Wales together with colleagues right across New South Wales, tracking mosquito populations and the pathogens they may be carrying, hopefully to give early warnings about future risks of mosquito-borne disease. So the flood, the recent floods, the ongoing floods, the more floods we're going to see, they are having a big impact on this situation as well? Yeah, definitely are. And so the floods are bringing so much water to the environment that is already wet. And so what we're seeing is there's so much water around, it provides great opportunities for mosquitoes. And what we're really waiting for is just to see how hot it gets over the summer, because the warmer it 
gets, the more mosquitoes we generally get. And unfortunately, the greater the mosquito populations, the higher the risk typically is of seeing outbreaks of mosquito-borne disease. So are we seeing any new variants of mosquito viruses? So the, the virus that we're most concerned about this summer is Japanese encephalitis virus. We're concerned about that because that's a, a relatively new arrival in southeastern Australia. Um, across the country it was responsible for over 40 cases of disease and unfortunately uh, seven deaths over the past 12 months or so. So that's a potentially fatal mosquito-borne disease. And so together with some of our other mosquito-borne diseases, things like Murray Valley encephalitis virus and particularly Ross River virus that does infect uh, hundreds if not thousands of people across eastern Australia every year, um, everybody is being warned to stay on alert uh, to avoid mosquito bites where possible, but importantly, stay tuned for the outcomes of some of these mosquito and other virus surveillance programs that will give you an early warning of activity of these viruses in the environment. And um, are we seeing any new breeds of mosquitoes around at the moment? So there's hundreds of different types of mosquitoes across Australia and dozens and dozens across western New South Wales, what we're seeing is not necessarily new types of mosquitoes, but a really diverse range of mosquitoes that are coming out of these floodwaters because all of the water in the environment not only creates opportunities for large numbers of mosquitoes, but also different types of mosquitoes. However, when it comes to mosquito-borne disease, the mosquito we're most concerned about is a species called Culex annulirostris. It's a mosquito that will bite us and animals and plays an important role in spreading these pathogens that make us sick. I think the most important thing is if you're out and about cleaning up after the floods, not just at the moment, but in the weeks and months ahead, take those steps to avoid mosquito bites and protect yourself from mosquito-borne disease. Professor Cameron Webb speaking there to Georgia Condec. New South Wales Health says that vaccines are available from your GP. You need to ring ahead to make sure they've got them or order them in. And they are recommending them for anyone working out of doors, particularly in the west of the state or in flood-affected areas where there are mosquitoes. Time for markets. First up, let's go to Casino Cattle. There was 1,372 head yarded, that's up by 372, with both young cattle and cows up in numbers. Weaners made up a larger percentage of the yarding, with the quality very mixed. The market lost last week's gain, and more in places, depending on weight and breed. With restocker weaner steers selling 10 cents cheaper, they sell from 600 to 872 cents. Restocker weaner heifers, 20 cents cheaper, most sell from 450 to 814. Yearling steers to restock and feed were easier, they ranged from 470 to 680 for most lightweights. And yearling heifers also easier, 450 to 616. Only a few bullocks and steers, they ranged from 406 to 418, feeders up to 498. Cow market was back by 5 to 8 cents. Three score medium weight cows averaged 3.72. Heavy cows sold from 378 to 392 cents. Restockers were very strong, paying up to 392 cents for cows back to the paddock. This is Doug Robson Casino. Let's go to Carcor Sheep and Lambs, Tim Delaney. Good afternoon. There was a jump in lamb supply to 11,310 at CTLX. Clotty was from very good to plain. Yarding consisted of 6,400 new season lands from good to heavy trade. Weights, many pens of medium trade to lighter weights, suiting both restockers and processors. Restockers pay from $80 to $170 for their store lands. Prices for unchanged 
for the best quality new scissors lambs. It was an overall softer marker. However, for the planer and the older lambs from five to fifteen dollars, light tray weight lambs made from one hundred and thirty-seven to one hundred and sixty-one dollars. The medium trade new seasons lands sold from 160 to 193. New season heavy lands made from 212 to 228 dollars. Costs range from 770 to 820 cents a kilogram carcass weight. Medium weight old lands sold from 132 to 180 dollars. Heavier lands made from 165 to 215, reaching a top of 243 dollars. There were 4,250 sheep penned of mixed quality. Prices were generally from 10 to 20 dollars softer. Light sheep made from $60 to $71. The medium mutton made from $86 to $125. Heavy sheep sold from $100 to $157. This has been Tim Delay reporting at MLA CTLX. Let's go to Cowra Sheep and Lambs now and Rob Pearce. Good afternoon, Michael. There are 8,250 lambs up by 5,300. Quality was good with the 5,900 new seasons offered. And there were mainly trade and heavy pen stores increased in supply. Medium and heavy trade new seasons were 11 to 14 cheaper. 20 to 22 kilos sold from 149 to 169. 22 to 24, 173 to 189, averaging 740 to 780 cents. Heavy weights were 16 to 20 cheaper. 24 to 26, 185 to 206. 26 to 30, 204 to 225, averaging 740. Restockers sold from 110 to 154, down $12. And the balance of the lambs and 3,000 mutton are still to be sold. And it's been Rob Pearce from MLA at Cowra. Thanks, Rob. Let's go to Yass now and Graham Richard. Good afternoon. Lamb numbers jumped to 15,700 and included 9,000 new season lambs. The quality was fair to good. There were good numbers of trade and heavyweights. Stores were much better supplied. The market sold to a cheaper trend. The new season store lambs were back 20 to $30 and ranged from 70 to 136 Trades to 24 kilos were 10 to 15 cheaper, 141 to 180 The 24 to 26 kilos, 188 to 200 and they averaged from 740 to 760 Heavyweights reached 220 Old trades, 136 to 169 The heavyweights, 161 to 211 with the best hoggett reaching 179 Mutton numbers lifted and the quality was plainer, with more lightweight ewes offered. Prices fell $20 to $25 a head. The medium weight ewes, 93 to 137 Heavy crossbreds, 118 to 141 And Merino weathers reached 132 The balance of the lambs and mutton are still to be sold. And this has been Graham Richard. And let's go to Mossvale Cattle now and David Kent. Good afternoon, Michael. Numbers lifted by almost 200 for a total yarding of 824 fair to good quality cattle, consisting mainly of young cattle returning to the paddock with a few good lines of well-finished yearlings to suit the trade and 67 cows. All the usual buyers were operating, cows and grown heifers were cheaper and there was strong competition for all other categories. Yearlings to process were firm, yearling steers 442 to 576 and the heifer portion 462 to 562. Feeder steers a few cents easier, 458 to 578 and heifers to feed 430 to 524. Competition was strong for young weaners with restocker buyers paying up to 8 128 cents to average 626 for weaner steers and 540 to 660 for heifers. Heavy ground steers also back a few cents, quality related 380 to 460. Ground heifers followed similar trends 370 to 445. Two and three score cows up to 24 cents cheaper 250 to 348. Heavy prime cows back 13, 370 to 415. Heavy bulls to process lifted 12 with the best making 385 cents per kilo. Dave Kent at Mossvale for MLA. You've been listening to The Country Hour. It's uh, time for the news and one o'clock.